good to see you, good to see you, those watching online as well. Uh, it is it's another Sunday, and it's in August, right? Here we go. Um, let's just start out with a little tally, okay? Are there any lake people in the room right now? Who's a lake person during the summer? Just raise your hand if you're a lake person. Who's a lake person? Who uh, is uh, afraid that when you get in a lake, there is secretly a shark that is waiting to kill you as soon as you get in the lake? Is any of those giant things called sturgeon in the water in Oregon? They were giant dinosaurs that roamed the bottom of these uh, giant rivers. And I, I, I don't know why I went to this Bonneville Dam and they had this giant skeleton out, like, a, like a, an old museum, like a carcass of a dinosaur. And they had one of these giant sturgeon. It was like 15 or 20 feet long. And I was like, I will never swim again. We'll never go again. So I, don't, I, was just, I was just curious to see if there was any other people out there that swam and then was worried that the megalodon was going to drag them under in Stockton Lake. I, I know it's unfounded. I'm not saying it's true. I was just curious. Now, next time you're out there, you're going to be like, there's sturgeon in this water. What the heck is a sturgeon? I'm going to go look this up. <laughs> Today's text is in John, and we're going to be in John chapter 12. Uh, we're trying to cover 30 verses today. Some of you are like, that seems daunting. You are right. <laughs> um, I've worked a lot on this sermon this week. I put some time in. I've researched the text itself is incredibly exciting and fun, and there's some points in here that I think are very helpful. I will let you know, though, one of the last references and things that I read and listened to yesterday to kind of just sew up uh, basically ended with, you should never preach this. It's way too complicated. Um, it's just, it's, it's really hard. And I remember just sitting in the car and going, great, <laughs> here we go. <laughs> so I want to start out with some reasons why this can be a little tricky. And I want to give you a little helpful thoughts to have in your mind as you're trying to figure this stuff out, because I definitely think you're going to have questions or maybe some unanswered questions that I don't think will completely maybe get fulfilled, or you may just find yourself getting stuck on a phrase or getting stuck on a section. It's totally normal in the Bible, but this section has some special kind of hiccups. The first thing I want to just point out on why this section is difficult is uh, Hebrew phrasing. <clears throat> now, why this is important to recognize is that the New Testament primarily is written in Greek, but there's a lot of quotations in Hebrew. So you've now combined English, Greek, and Hebrew into one section. And to give you an idea of how easy it is to be thrown off even by your own language, just start to think of some phrases that you and I have that can't be taken literally. Like, that's so cool. Take that literally for a second. I'm sorry, do you need a blanket? No, um, I like cool things. Or how about this? I'll go old school for you. That car's so cherry, man. Car's so cherry, right? If you took that phrase as literal, like they'd be like, what are you talking about? It's a cold piece of fruit driving down the road. I don't get what you're, <laughs> what are you talking about? And that's our own language in phrasing. And there are phrases in this text that are in Hebrew that have contexts that are outside of the literal, that have more specific meaning. And so when you try to take it and you transfer it from Greek to Hebrew to English and then you make it make sense, it's challenging at the least. Okay? Second is this. 
Uh, the context of the Old Testament references. We are going to talk a lot about the, the prophet Isaiah today. If you don't know about the book of Isaiah and you start using it as like a way to explain something, but you don't know what they're using to explain the thing currently, like they're just like, you know, like Isaiah. And you're like, uh-huh. Go further. They're like, no, 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 you know, Isaiah 6, throne room. Yes. No idea what you're talking about because you don't have a reference to it. It makes the explanation makes it more complicated than less complicated if that makes sense. But to them, the original audience, these phrases, these references would bring help, would strengthen. The last thing is this, uh, the buildup of the narrative. Uh, John's gospel itself was meant to be read as a whole. It was not meant to be read in little sections. He wanted you to sit down, it takes about two hours, and he just wants you, he wanted you to read the whole thing to see how everything ties together. And this specific section is not like Lazarus' story in 11, where you can kind of just jump into the characters and figure out what's going on. This is something that builds chapters post and before. And to rip it out of the context, it, it makes it a little bit more difficult to see what's going on. So all three of these things in themselves are the reason why this section is a little bit more difficult. Now, why I'm trying to build this up a little bit in your mind is I want you to not get thrown off if there's a phrase or something that you don't completely confuse. I, and I don't want you to get distracted as if you hear a reference from Isaiah and you have no idea what reference is Isaiah. And I don't want you to get thrown off if the story itself sometimes doesn't completely make sense in your mind. I, I want you to know this is one of the most impactful, powerful sections that inside the whole narrative, with the complete meaning of Hebrew, with the knowledge of Isaiah, is powerful. It's powerful. So if that doesn't completely compute or connect today, that's okay. I just want you to know it's there. I'm going to do my best to try to get that to you. So let's start. If we have 30 verses, we could be here if I just read them. So let's just try to get through this. After... Jesus has now entered the gates of Jerusalem, Passover. Mary has poured the oil on Jesus' feet, and he has raised Lazarus at the end of chapter 11. Now we pick up with this, where some of the Greeks are hearing of these stories, hearing of these tales, and they're showing up. Now there were many, or some Greeks, among them who went up to worship at the festival, Passover. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we want to see Jesus. I love it. Philip went to Andrew, Andrew to Philip, and in turn told Jesus. I love how John records just this telephone game of conversation. Now, why, why I think this is curious is if you go back and read the end of chapter 1 when Jesus calls his disciples, it is a very similar way that they seem to communicate. It's like one of them gets a message, and then it goes to the next one, and then it goes to the next one until finally they're like, hey, 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 Jesus, everybody's talking about this. You need to talk to them. All right, you just need to talk to him. So in verse 23, Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternity, for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now pause. 
do you get the sense of these Hebrew phrases in this? Now, I don't have the time to explain every single section of these. These are all like that car is cherry. All right? These are all that is cool. There are powerful pieces of each of these that carry weight that are inside kind of their statements, inside their understandings of who God is and what he's about. Let's keep going. 27. Uh, Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say, Father? Save me from this hour. No. It's for this reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then came a voice from heaven. I have glorified it. and It will be glorified again. When's the last time we saw Jesus baptize the voice? John chapter 2. The crowd that was there heard it and said, uh, said it thundered. And others said it as an angel has spoken to him. But Jesus said, this, is, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. John chapter 2, we have this voice coming down from heaven. This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Very similar language. Now, this is the time for judgment on this world. Not, not the, uh, the prince of this world will be uh, driven out. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And he said, this is to show the kind of death he was going to die. Okay, so pause. Let me just break down one of the phrases for you. Okay? I want to break down one of these phrases to give you kind of a context to why this is so powerful. This is what I'm going to break down right here. This 32. When I am lifted up from the earth and will be draw all people to myself. He said, this is to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now pause. This is where John is starting to expose what is really going on, what Jesus is really talking about. Now, John himself in the next section is going to use Isaiah, but I want to show you Isaiah is already in this context. Before we get to the next section where John himself in the gospel is going to quote Isaiah, I want to show you how this phrase is actually in Isaiah already. Isaiah chapter 6 that I said is the throne room experience. If you've never read this, go and read it. Isaiah is going to be the mouthpiece of God to the people, to the nation of Israel. And he is going, and he has this vision. And this is what it says. In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, that idea of being lifted up The idea of being taken up, exalted, put above all things. Isaiah in chapter 53 starts this idea of this suffering servant that is going to come, a Messiah, and do the work that the law couldn't and repair the relationship, bring a new covenant. Really, really cool. Guess how it talks about the suffering servant. This is so cool. Isaiah 52, it starts, and then Isaiah 53, it tells you the details. In Isaiah 52, it says this in verse 13, See, my servant will act wisely, or he will act in my, you know, I think, what, I, what did I put in my notes? I had, he, it will act with, and he will prosper. He will act wisely, or he will prosper, and he will be what? Raised and lifted up, highly exalted. Now, why this matters is when in the end of this section in 12, in verse 32 that I just talked about that we were going to elevate this phrase, is John is taking God's image of the throne room and transposing the image of the suffering servant over the top of it. 
John is transposing the image of God with the image of the Messiah. He's going, that throne room experience of Isaiah and the suffering servant, they're both highly exalted up. So when God, when Jesus says this, he's saying, I am that suffering servant. I am God. They would know that phrase. They would know that phrase. They would, they would go, oh man, he's, he's saying some stuff right now. I don't know if I agree with it. So guess what John has to do? John is going to have to explain what Jesus is talking about so that his audience gets it. But we first get the response of the crowd to what he just said. Look what the crowd says in verse 34. The crowd, we have heard from the law that the Messiah will remain forever. So they picked up on it. See, you're talking about the Messiah. You're talking about the Son of God. So how can you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? They're going, great, lift it up. Where is he? Where's the throne room experience? Where's the experience that's going to show us who you are? Where's our Isaiah 6 moment? Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. It's like, he just wanted to probably look at him and just go like, I'm right here, guys. <laughs> I'm right here. Walk while you have the light before the darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where they are going. You're missing it. Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. We have finished speaking. Jesus left and hid himself from them. He's basically saying, I'm the light of the world, which we just covered in chapter 7. Remember? Remember the light? It's why it's part of the narrative. It's why it's difficult. You're like, what's he saying? He's like, it's me. I'm going to be lifted up. I got to die, but then I'm going to come back. It's going to be different. And they're missing it. So this is where John gets to take his moment and explain what just happened. And he's going to do the same thing that we just talked about. John takes his time, and he breaks it into pieces, all right? So here's what he does. After Jesus had performed miracles and many signs in the presence, they still would not believe in him. This is John poking his head in. Remember, this is what John loves to do in this book. He's like, hey, just so you know, uh, he did a lot more stuff, but they still didn't believe. And he's going to like, pop in and out of the narrow. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. The Lord been revealed, Isaiah 53. No one sees the suffering servant as the Messiah. It's prophesied in 53.1. They don't recognize him. They miss the point. John's putting this together because he knows Hebrew. He knows the narrative. He knows Isaiah. And it's, I'm sure it's later that he's going like, oh my gosh, I knew it. I knew what he was going. I knew what was happening, but I missed it. So then he continues and he says this. For this reason, they could not believe. Because as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that neither they could see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and would be healed. A pause. What in the world is that? 
See what I'm talking about? You read that and you're like, so God made them not believe? Do you read that there? God made it so where they could not see? God showed? Yeah, right? That, I mean, when you read that, in my mind, that's what's going on, right? Where else have we seen this? Just as a quick reference. Exodus. Pharaoh's heart. The ten plagues of, of Egypt. It literally says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, Jesus needs to die to pay the price. And if they recognize before he dies, there's a good chance that a lot of them are going to go, you, you cannot die. You are innocent. You are pure. There's no way. Nobody sees that. But I think there's some deeper theology in this. I think this is pointing out the limits of the law. I think this is pointing out there's a limit to what you and I can accomplish by our own works, acts, even if guided by God. Even if told by God what to do, Adam and Eve still happens with free will. Even if walking in the garden, being with God, there's just a part of us that rebels in this world. We're broken. We are hardened of heart. We, we, we want to do what we want to do, and nobody tells us any different. At the deepest parts of us. And this section right here is just saying, God, let it happen, because it's a choice. Now, there is so much in this. Don't get caught up. This is one 20 to 30 minute speech. But what comes out of this, what comes out of the context of Isaiah 6.10, which is when the nation of Israel had the same problem and needed to be called back. Let's continue and see. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Pause. Notice John says, the suffering servant is Jesus, and Isaiah saw him in chapter 53. This is a big declaration to a group of people that know the book of Isaiah, that have been looking for a Messiah. He literally says, yet at the same time, even many among the leaders believed in him, which is crazy. So the people that knew Isaiah the most started to put this together, but those Greeks that did not know Isaiah that came missed the point. It's crazy. But because of the Pharisees did not open, openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of God. And if you have never done the research, look no further than Nicodemus as one of the characters comes to Jesus in chapter 3 at night, speaks up once or twice when there's these large councils that he's a part of because he's a Pharisee, and then we're even going to meet him again after Jesus dies because he's willing to go and get Jesus' body after he dies, but he never declares openly he believes because he's afraid. And then we go back into the narrative, all right? Now, John's done his little piece. He's done his explanation of Isaiah. He's done his explanation of what's just gone on. And now we're back to Jesus. 
And Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not, does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. Man, these are clarifying terms. I'm going to point out to you how John records these quotes from Jesus that then turn into these verses that we know from earlier in John. That's why the full narrative needs to be understood. I have come into the world as a light so that no one could believe in me should stay in darkness. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come into the world to judge the world, to save the world. Jesus didn't come to judge. That's a different part of the God triune head that's going to do that. There is a judge. Well, the one who rejects me and does not accept my words, the words that the very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. Now, when you hear those words, I hope what you start to connect is you start to think of a specific section. Because this is, this is what's crazy. He's going to finish this section by saying this. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say, I'll just do what the Father has told me to say. Now, when that section ends, I want you to think about for a section, or for a, for a second, what other section sounds so similar to Jesus' quotes right here? These quotes are powerful. I am light in the darkness. My words lead to life. I'm not here to condemn the world. I'm here to save it. Have you made the connections to John chapter 3? With the very audience of Nicodemus. The Pharisees that would have faith but not publicly express it. Look at how John takes Jesus' words and turns them into his understanding of what Jesus was saying. I have spoken to you of eternal things. Talking to Nicodemus, this is Jesus. You do not believe, but the, the, how then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one, is going to go, uh, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Again, this is Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Just as Moses lifted up the stake in the wilderness, so that the Son of Man will be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And John adds his little section to that that connects so beautifully with the end of chapter 12. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, because the Father and the Son are transposed over themselves. They are, they're both that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. This is the verdict. Look at how cool this is. John takes that light imagery. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead. Hard hearts. Hard hearts. Blind eyes. Instead of the light because their deeds were evil, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light 
Why? Who was in fear? For fear that their deeds will be exposed. Pharisees, just as guilty as the Greeks of the light, afraid of it. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so they may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done by God in the sight of God. Being loved and known at the same time is the only way to receive the life of Christ, to be fully known and fully loved at the same moment. You cannot pretend to be something and receive the love of God. You have to come into the light. And I know that's really tricky because some of the things you and I do, we do them on purpose, evilly, like brokenly, terribly. We make the choice to go against God. This, this, is, this is plainly saying that's not a reason not to come into the light. Declare your allegiance by bringing your sins, your issues before the throne room and letting Christ be lifted up to take care of them. Now, this is the end. We made it. Chapter, or verse 50. We did it. Got all the way to the end. Now, this is where I was on Friday. Right here. This is all I had. I went, how do I end this? Where do we go from here? What do we do? I, I, I wish, I wish like this section I felt like just, just wrapped up a little bow. And that's part of the reason why I think I was told not to preach this is because like the ending is like God and Jesus are one. Believe in Jesus. Because that's the point of John's gospel. That's, that's the point of John's gospel. But I want to give you three things to take away from this. Three things to ponder. This isn't all that's in here by any means, but three good things for you to think about. The first is this. Jesus is exalted. So let me ask you a question. Maybe this day and age, this pandemic, this year has made you ask this question. What is most important? What is most important? Man, this question eats at me most days, doesn't it? You, these days, what, what is most important? Is it education? Is it a candidate? Is it, is it a mask? Is it health? Is it money? Is it freedom? What, what is most is it, is it my health? Is it my family? I mean, is it my marriage? I, I mean, is it my personal walk with Christ? Or is it just Jesus. Here's, here's my thought for you. Reading this section, what if we just exalted Jesus? What if we just each day said out loud, or maybe you just got to start in your heart, that Jesus and his opinions, his thoughts, who he is is most important? What if we just exalted him and let that be a simple thing in the back? That no YouTube video, no post, no article, no conversation with another human being trumps Jesus. His opinion and his thoughts, the way he loves you and I, the way he feels about you and I, what he would give for you and I, how he would claim you would be most important. Why don't we just try Jesus? 
Exalt him again. Put him back as most important. Second takeaway, these are for me just as much as you. Jesus brings the light. Darkness. Um, unless I'm sleeping. Then I love darkness. But I'll tell you, it can be tempting sometimes to not let things be known to not want the truth to come out. Let me ask you this. You want, you want the truth? Or you want to live the lie? I mean, do you want Jesus to bring the light? Do you want the truth of the situation? Or do you want to medicate, distract, and escape the truth? This is a really important question for you and I. Do you, are you just so excited to get back to some sort of normal so you can ignore the thing that's risen in your life that's the truth? Are you, are you so excited to get back to whatever normal was before so that you don't have to deal with the reality that is the truth in your life right now? That things have been exposed for what they really are and who you really are. I feel that in myself these days. I think if things were more comfortable, if things were just easier, I could pretend easier too. Let me ask you this. When you experience this light and you actually truly desire the truth, when you get to those places where the truth comes crashing in, and I, I promise you, if you sit with this question long enough and you say, Jesus, you are the light, I want the truth. Jesus, you are the light, I want the truth. If you do that, it's going to be. Because the truth is, you and I are so far. We are not close. We're not doing better on our own efforts. We're struggling. I don't have conversations these days with people that are chipper, excited, and feeling great about life. I have conversations with people that miss things, recognize their own weaknesses and brokenness, are scared to see what tomorrow could bring because they're not sure if they're ready. Some may say it's not even sure if it's worth living if this is how it's going to be, which makes me so sad. So what I want you to do in this is try to put Jesus back on the top, and then look to Jesus to see what he says, because he is light. But he did not come to condemn you. It, it says that multiple times. It says it in chapter 12. It says it in chapter 3. He didn't come to condemn you. Look to him for compassion, grace, and love. Look to him to, to teach you how to live. That the Holy Spirit would reveal through his life, his work, the Gospel of John is chock full of things. For you to put your faith in him. Look to him. He's the light. And the last one is this. Jesus offers eternal life. I, uh, I'm very aware that um, young children, especially mine, or maybe you've been around, uh, kids, when they discover that things die, it changes the conversation, doesn't it? You've been around a child when they, they I'm like, my, my eight-year-old picked up a big bug yesterday. 
and looked at me and he goes, oh, it's sleeping. And it was dead as doornail. And first of all, I said, disgusting, throw that on the ground, why are you picking that up? But after that, the dad in me kicked in and I, I said, hey, why don't you throw that away, it's dead. And he said, wait, it, bugs can die? I said, yeah, buddy, Every, everything dies. Everything. Everything in this world. It lives and then it will die. And his face, you guys, was like I killed a puppy in front of him. Like I think he just had everything he loved. It was like the weight of the world crashed in. I didn't realize that I was doing that to him in the moment. And he needed to know. But I wonder if the last six months, if you and I haven't had more interactions with that. Not because of statistics, not because of some thing that's going on externally, but because internally you've had to deal with the thought that whether by a virus or by age or by accident something happens, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. It's going to happen. So what happens after we die? Have you had that question yet from a child? That's a fun one. You know what's really fun to look at a kid and go, I got some thoughts, but I don't really know. Got some ideas, but I can't paint you a picture. I can give you some thoughts, tell you it's going to be good. I can't tell you for sure. What it's going to look like. Now, what I love to think about when I think about heaven from the Christian perspective, and I love C.S. Lewis's quote, if God can condemn with one ounce of sin, then surely he can save with one ounce of faith. I lean towards that way. Grace and truth. But what I love is when the Bible paints pictures about heaven, it, it paints them like this. A, a banquet, I can get down with that. I can get down with a, with a banquet. I can eat some food. Sounds good. Uh, mansions, yeah, hook me up, sweet pad. I bet we're going to throw some parties. That's in there, big parties. I'm in. But you know what it says most about it? It's going to be forever. And that Jesus is going to be exalted. And he's going to be the light that never goes out. And that there's no more darkness. And no more suffering, no more hurt, no more hiding. It all goes away. When you believe in him, you receive that. Believe in Jesus and never die. In fact, Jesus says this in chapter 11 with, with Lazarus. They're, they're like, hey, uh, where's Lazarus? He's like, yeah, he's uh, taking a long nap. He's dead. But he's not Dead. You realize that, Mary. You realize that, Martha, right? You, you realize he didn't die. Like he did, Those that believe in me will never die. You, you get that, right? I love uh, Dallas Willard's quote on heaven. This is so healthy for you. It's not in my notes, but Dallas Willard said, my goal is to live my life in such a way and to surround myself with people and to trust in Jesus more every day. And then his quote said, so that when I die, I wouldn't even know that I did. 
I would just wake up and it would be heaven. And I would feel close to Jesus and I would know his love. I wouldn't even know I was dead. That was his quote. I hope I die and I wake up and I didn't even know I was dead. That's the way I lived my life. Just wake up in heaven, God's presence all over again. My prayer for you out of this section, one, that it gives you a taste of the complexity of John, but the beauty of what John is trying to do, that he says, look, Jesus, raise Lazarus from the grave. He comes in as the conquering king, and they go, be lifted up, exalted. How are you going to become king? And then we get the end of chapter 12, where we start to recognize that a kernel has to go into the ground, and that is the way that Jesus will be elevated on the cross. His sacrifice will be the suffering servant's exaltation. You and I live in that freedom. May we lift him up. May we trust in him. May we seek his truth. May we live in his grace and eternal life forever. Pray with me.